Hello, and welcome to this CIO live stream event. It is my honor and privilege to join you uh, here. Welcome uh, to the world headquarters of one of the world's best capitalized banks and one of the world's best capitalized countries. And if you've been watching this uh, for some time, you'd know I've been saying that for some time uh, as, as the COVID crisis came on. And, and uh, you know, right now we are looking at this Omicron. We are looking at the strength of the economy, the inflation picture, and we're talking about the year ahead that we've just put out. Uh, and so we've got a variety of CIO experts with you today. We can also talk a little bit about, as you know, we always look at the world in a scenario framework, and certainly a, a, re, a resurgence of the virus is one of our uh, scenarios. But we are calling it a year of discovery because we still think that this will be a year where we discover more of what life is like past the COVID crisis. We are not changing our outlook of, for a first half of the year with continued growth and global growth and also some global inflation that normalizes towards the back half of the year. Uh, and we think that the reflation trade the, the sectors exposed to that growth will do well, but we've also highlighted in here uh, why healthcare in equities is trading at attractive valuations. It's a more defensive sector, and it's certainly something that can uh, perform towards the back half of the year. Uh, but that's getting pulled forward today. But let's get let's get into this because there's so much exciting stuff, and we really love the opportunity to talk to you about what we're doing in our investment meetings right now. And uh, to get us kicked off, a man who needs no introduction, Paul Donovan, who is joining us today from Italy. So that's, uh, that is one thing that's changed. Paul, want to turn it over to you. Uh, what, are the, what are the most important questions we need to think about as we think about this year of two halves? Well, the, the year of two halves, I think, is, uh, is very important to follow because what we are seeing is sort of lingering, really strong demand in the first half of the year. That's coming out of consumers, uh, particularly in Europe on this occasion, spending the savings that they've accumulated. Remember, Europe, uh, at least continental Europe, is a bit behind the Anglo-Saxon economies in terms of starting its economic recovery, and so it, it drags on into 2022, and that gives us a very strong period of above-trend growth in the first half of the year as we see the accumulated savings of European consumers being put to work. Then, in the second half of the year, we're going to get a slowdown, but it's not a slowdown to be worried about. It's actually a slowdown to be welcomed, because what we're going to be seeing is a return to normality, a return back to the, the trend rates of growth. Consumers will have gone through the savings that they've accumulated. They'll go back to living within their regular incomes, and that means a more normal pattern of growth, a more balanced supply and demand picture in the second half of the year. So strong above trend growth in the first half, really powered by you know, the European consumers getting their savings out into the economy, and then the normalization of growth in the second half of the year. Okay. Okay. Now, I wanted to set a little bit of a global picture 
before we started to talk about the headline news today of the variant because we are actually getting cross currents of uh, you know the, the Federal Reserve speaking as well as trying to place this uh, Omicron in that but from an economic perspective, talk about you know some of the things we're looking at with Omicron, how it impacts this inflation picture, how it impacts uh, the way that we will hear policymakers talking about you know great growth at a time where uh, th this potential threat is is in the market. Okay, so on, on the growth side, um, we come back to the point that we have been stressing right since March 2020. The virus itself doesn't matter. It is fear of the virus that creates an economic reaction in terms of economic activity and growth. And I would say that for the most part, we are not seeing elevated levels of fear amongst consumers around the Omicron variant, that consumers are behaving quite sensibly about this. Um, you know, the, the fear levels are nothing like what we saw last year. And you can see that even in somewhere like Austria, which has gone into formal lockdown, the actions of, of consumers in Austria, the mobility data, are nothing like the, the sort of very negative levels we had uh, back in early 2020. You, you've, you've had a difference here. Now, there are some sectors which are somewhat peculiar because we've seen governments shutting down uh, borders because, you know, the Swiss government has said, you know, they don't want me to visit um, because I'm coming from the UK, you know, all that sort of thing. What that has done is introduce an element of fear into travel. Less about fear of the virus, more about fear that you're going to get stranded somewhere because all the borders are shut down all of a sudden. So there might be an impact on the travel sector. But overall, I'm not expecting a huge impact in terms of GDP growth. I don't think we're going to get you know, a really, really big impact. Certainly nothing like we saw last year. Alongside the fear, we've also got to recognize people have adapted. You know, we're not going to be scrambling to set up our home offices. Our home offices are there. We're not going to be you know, trying to work out how to order groceries online. We've all got our accounts set up and have been doing it for the last 18 months. So the transition to somewhat more restrictions this time, if that is what we end up with, is not going to be nearly as economically disruptive as it was 18 months ago. So taking this all together, I think certain sectors we might see some problems coming in, but that's more about fear of the policy response than fear of the virus itself. We're not at this stage seeing significant changes in fear amongst consumers, so we're not seeing significant changes in consumer behavior, and I think that keeps the economic narrative, the big picture story, that remains largely intact in this situation. Some of the details are going to change a bit, though. So you've touched on some of the things that you know, make me so grateful I'm here at UBS with global, with a global team, with, you know, we're a global firm that can, that has the resources and the power and the desire to track all these different aspects of this. And so, you know, looking at the data on not what people are saying or what people are saying to the news source, but how they're behaving, you know, that's one thing that we're looking at, that we're looking at the science here uh, as well. Uh, calling on experts around the world, but then also measuring very carefully uh, the policy response to things because, uh, you know, one, a week ago, the largest concern that we had would, was around a mistake, a policy mistake about 
uh, hiking or tightening uh, policy too fast because of fears of inflation. And of course, now we have to think, well, you know, this adds another element and something that uh, Chair Powell talked about is that they don't they some some central banks may be less inclined to tighten. They may keep loose policy around for longer given this uncertainty and this could also Im, Im, impact this inflation question. But can so w there's so many parts here but maybe you can just talk more about last week's big concern the infl inflation part and how that may play out. Absolutely. Yeah, th this is this is where economists get really excited because the inflation story is absolutely fascinating. What we have had this year is an extraordinary pattern of demand. We have had just astonishing demand for goods, fueled by this shift from services to goods. People didn't want to spend so much on services, they spent more on goods, and the fact that we've got this big pool of savings accumulated during the lockdown. And of course what happened in lockdown was that governments shut down supply of goods, because you had lockdown, but they didn't shut down the demand in the sense that people were still receiving income, and so that demand was just being put on hold, what we call pent-up demand. And so we come out of lockdown with normal supply, but really, really abnormal levels of demand, really high levels of demand. And of course, not for all products, but for some products, that leads to pricing power, inflation pressures, and, and so on and so forth. Now, when I look at the data, what I see in the month-on-month -month changes in producer prices, in consumer prices, particularly in the core numbers, is the peak in inflation is past. It was in the first half of this year when pricing power was at its strongest and prices were rising every month by these really large amounts because the demand was so huge. But in the second half of this year, the month-on-month -month changes have come down. Now, they're not always back to normal, but they've come down a lot closer to normal than they were in the first half of this year. So we've seen a normalization of pricing power. That's not going to show up in the year-on-year -year numbers, not yet. That takes time to work its way through. But what it's telling me is that pricing power has moderated. And I think one of the reasons why pricing power has moderated is that we have seen the demand moderate a bit. Now, we're still very, very strong in demand. We're still above trend, but it's come down from the extreme highs. And what that's doing is easing some of the so-called supply chain problems, which are actually really simply that demand is greater than supply. It's not that the supply chain has collapsed. So we've been seeing things like, uh, an easing of conditions at uh, the, the ports in the United States. You know, the congestion is coming down. More ships are being offloaded. The goods are getting out into the country. We've seen delivery times. You know, the, the time it takes to get a good delivered after you've ordered it, they've been coming down. These are all signals that you know, goods are flowing more and that supply and demand are coming back into balance. This doesn't mean that we're going to immediately head into low inflation, though I would point out 
again, looking at month-on-month numbers, we're starting to see quite a few negative month-on-month numbers. Japan, Germany just had negative month-on-month consumer price inflation. So we are starting to see you know, some of these things coming through. And I think that this will continue as we go into next year. Not in a rush, but we are definitely moving towards a more normal pricing power environment overall. Energy prices remain high, and bad luck if you drive a car. Because if you drive a car, say, in the States, your your inflation rate is about double that of somebody who doesn't drive a car at the moment. If you don't drive a car in the U.S., your inflation is a little bit below 3%. Um, So what we have got here is something which is likely to stay in terms of the level of price so you know, our commodity analysts are saying you know, we're not expecting a big drop in the oil price, but the point here is the change very rapidly goes to zero. We're not saying that oil's going to be $160 next year. That's not what we're forecasting. We're saying it's going to be you know, below 80 probably over the course of the next year. And if that's the case, the change in the oil price goes from you know, being extremely high, 50% plus, to zero. And that means that oil prices don't contribute to inflation much over the course of 2022 either. So we're in an environment where the inflation pressures are showing signs of moderating exactly as we would expect as that really extraordinary demand gradually starts to come back to normal. All right. Thanks, Paul. Look, there's a lot more we could ask, including adding the the fiscal policy picture to this, but we've got to keep moving. Uh, what what I got out of what you said is that, uh, you know, generals always fight the last war, whether it's not being behind on COVID and now slapping on some restrictions right away, or, you know, uh, will policymakers talk tough about uh, inf- inflation when actually some of the signs are that it's moderating and you see that in the data. That's not just wishful uh, thinking. You know, that's one of the things that we're looking at. But of course, now I want to turn to Salida and get a little bit drilled down as we always try to do more on the markets. And uh, Salida, walk us through, you know, how the news on this variant is impacting the volatility and uh, what we see over this, uh, you know, maybe two weeks until we actually know some of the, the questions about uh, this variant and vaccines. Yes. Uh, well, thank you, Mark. So, you know, it's, it's still very early days right now, and it'll be at least a couple of weeks before we get clarity uh, on this variant's uh, transmissibility, uh, severity, and, of course, the vaccine efficacy against it. Uh, given this uncertainty, uh, we expect volatility to remain high over the next few weeks on any negative headlines. But the volatility spike does not mean, right, it is time to sell stocks. I think it's always good to put volatility in perspective. Um, the VIX hit about 29 on Friday um, last week, and historically, a reading of 29 or above has been uh, followed by strong returns from the S&P 500 over a 3, 6, and 12-month um, and period. And you can see that in the first chart uh, that I have here. And, you know, it appears that Friday's market reaction was a bit of a shoot first and ask questions later response, uh, not to mention a day of light participation uh, following the Thanksgiving holiday here in the U.S. Uh, we saw recovery plays take the biggest hit since June uh, on Friday, but then yesterday, right, Monday, we saw rebound after mRNA vaccine makers 
said um, that if the current vaccine proves to be ineffective against Omicron, they can get reformulated vaccines that will target this new variant out in the first few months in 2022. Meanwhile, we also have the antiviral treatments that will be part of the equation soon, which could still be effective against new variants. And, you know, as Paul already discussed, you know, we expect the negative impact uh, from Omicron to be smaller than previous COVID waves, barring maybe a truly severe variant. Also, we're now going to be entering our third year in this pandemic. I think people have become a little bit more comfortable maybe living with the risk. And even if consumer behavior were to change in a really bad case scenario and people become more cautious, I think equity investors are forward looking and would shift their expectations accordingly based on uh, what I've already discussed about antivirals and and potential adjusted vaccines coming in, um, you know, early part of next year. So, you know, overall, we advise investors against making any dramatic shifts in their overall investment strategy uh, while we all wait for more clarity from uh, the data on this very new variant. And, uh, and we still recommend staying invested and staying well diversified across markets and across sectors as well. Yeah, and, and uh, look, you know, it, it's going gonna, it's, it's going to be – choppy, even though we can say we think the, the picture remains the same, because when at a time when the CEO of a firm that sells vaccines can go on TV and, and talk about vaccines and, and uh, drive the, the markets down or, or up, uh, you know, there's going to – and we have a, this lack of information, and the market's ha- hanging on the, ne- the next uh, quote from a quote-unquote uh, figure of authority, that is an that is an environment that will produce some some chop and also some opportunity. So it's it's actually kind of an exciting period uh, from from the hunter mindset if you uh, if you have capital uh, to deploy. Um, yeah. So so now as we as we survey this tricky thing, and Paul talked a lot about uh, the the Fed and and the but, you know, the overall kind of uh, inflation picture globally. But can you take us down a level of detail in the U.S.? You know, Powell was even out with some some words today uh, on, on this topic. But, you know, when do we think that the Fed is going to start to move to tighten policy? And, and what are the, the variables around that right now? Yeah, so look, we did see, right, the markets really start to price in a more hawkish Fed after the FOMC minutes uh, when it came, you know, to both a faster taper and more aggressive rate hikes in 2022. We even saw the Fed funds rate projected at almost 90 basis points uh, for 2022, which is more than three hikes next year. Now, Obviously, we have seen the market readjust a bit after Friday's variant news, um, and I think I have it on the chart here, uh, on, on the Fed chart. Uh, we're now seeing the market pricing in somewhere between two to three hikes 
with the first uh, coming in June. But you know, overall, we still believe the market's view is too aggressive. Uh, we don't believe Fed will have enough data to make a decision to hike rates as early as June of 2022. Um, you know, we believe data is going to be really noisy in the next few months. Uh, while the Omicron variant poses risks to both inflation and, and maximum employment, you know, we think the Fed against this uncertain backdrop is likely to be cautious on the risk of over-tightening. I think the Fed does not want to risk impeding the labor market recovery to fight inflation, even if, you know, Powell's testimony today mentioned that the Fed will probably retire the word transitory. Um, so, you know, we, we see the year of 22, 2022, as Paul mentioned, as two health. And, you know, we think the Fed is going to look at the economy as two health as well. Right? In the first health, uh, the Fed will be looking for supply chain pressures to ease and price increases to moderate in line with expect its expectations. Uh, but more importantly, the Fed will pay attention to the labor market recovery to make sure that its mandate on full employment is being met. Now, there's, of course, a lot of um, uncertainty um, you know, around what will actually constitute full employment for the Fed. Um, I think if you look at, uh, just to make sure we have, yes, in this chart um, here um, on, 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 the, on the right, we're still, you know, feeling the effects of the pandemic on the labor market with payroll still 4.2 million below the pre-pandemic peak. Uh, we know 1.2 million people close, you know, chose to retire early, and that represents a permanent loss. The question for the Fed is, how many more in the workforce have left permanently? So we expect Fed to be patient in the near term as we wait for more clarity on inflation and labor developments. If, you know, by the second half, inflation comes down in line with our expectations, we don't expect the Fed to hike rates until 2023. If, on the other hand, inflation doesn't come down meaningfully by mid-2022, uh, but we have made significant progress in the labor market recovery, then rate hikes, hikes will be more likely. Uh, but again, at this point, Mark, this is not our base case. Okay, Salida. And let me, let me uh, try to say it in a, in a different way. That One of the ways that I think about it is that uh, – so, you know, Paul laid out that we actually do think that the inflation is going to moderate. Now we have perhaps other things around uh, the Omicron where maybe the Fed will decide to move a little bit slower. But the, the import, one of the important things is the market is actually already pricing in uh, a fair number of hikes. So, you know, if our picture is a little bit too optimistic about the inflation, well, that just, you know, that's – could be okay because the market is already pricing in more aggressive hiking than we are. And then the other aspect, and we'll come to the positioning in a second, is that some inflation is good. Like the fact that the in transitory word going away doesn't have to be bad because remember, a year ago, we were talking about deflation. And what if the, the money markets in the United States, you know, break, break the buck, right? So, so the, the idea that we could go back, you know, in Switzerland, we still have negative rates. The idea that we could go back to a positively sloped yield curve and some belief that we, we can have some inflation is not necessarily the worst picture, particularly if you're positioned as we are 
in some of the stocks that could actually benefit from a from a little bit more inflation. So we don't have a lot of time left, uh, but Salita, maybe you could just quickly talk about uh, positioning around U.S. assets. Sure. Um, maybe I'll just look through U.S. equities and bonds. So we're constructive on U.S. equities. Earnings remain supportive. And third quarter earnings specifically show that S&P 500 margins have remained largely stable despite inflation and supply chain issues. Strong demand is one reason for this, which has made it possible to manage uh, rising materials and uh, labor costs. In addition, you know, household finances do remain strong, which are really keeping U.S. consumer in great shape. And finally, the ISM manufacturing index remains around 60, which, you know, suggests the business cycle uh, will remain healthy. So when you sum it all of these things up, um, you know, we recently raised our price target on the S&P 500 to 5,000 by June and 5,100 by December. Um, within equities, we believe fundamentals still support value and cyclical segments heading into the year, like financials and energy. And we also keep our you know, preference for mid-caps where valuations are attractive, um, and we should see even stronger earnings growth there compared to large caps. Um, you know, higher long-term rates should also support mid-caps uh, more than larger companies. However, you know, we expect growth to moderate in the latter half of the year. We think it's best to balance it out with some cyclical, you know, balance out some of the cyclical exposure that we have uh, with healthcare exposure, which is more defensive. And I'm sure, you know, Mark Anderson, when he discusses asset allocation, he might go more into it. Um, quickly, maybe on fixed income. Uh, we are looking for a modest rise in 10-year yields in 2022, heading toward 2% level. Um, you know, while a continued recovery and strong U.S. fundamentals uh, remain, um, I think we anticipate increasing overseas demand for U.S. dollar assets as interest rates rise. Uh, we do expect interest rate volatility certainly to continue in 2022 because of, you know, with the COVID-related events or more likely uh, because of rising real yields as inflation expectations decline in the second half of the year. Um, you know, when thinking about positioning, um, fundamentals continue to remain strong for credit, uh, and our preference is for senior loans. However, you know, given the amount of spread compression that we have witnessed this year, uh, we're not really surprised, I would say, by the recent correction in, in spreads. Although, you know, our outlook continues to remain favorable, we anticipate volatility and potential for further spread widening. Uh, however, I think that's going to be an opportunity rather than something to be um, fearful of. That's how we're positioned across U.S. assets. Thank you, Salita. And uh, Ben, you know, we, we may run a little bit over, but I'm, I'm having a good time. I hope you're having a good time. And I want to learn more about the uh, global positioning. And for that, we're going to hand it over to Mark Anderson. Thanks so much, Mark. So uh, I think Salida was kind of laying a good case, I think, for U.S. equities. And U.S. equities, we just got admitted that was the place to be for 2021. I think it was driven by a couple of factors. So it was, first of all, an early vaccine rollout, an early economic recovery, a kind of reluctancy to lock down when we had kind of a, some of the smaller waves and also, of course, a, a big uh, kind of uh, position in technology in the overall index. That, of course, means that we've seen some valuation gap starting to open into other areas like Europe and Japan that have significantly underperformed U.S. equities for, for 21. 
but they have a couple of things going for them that we think is kind of interesting. And the first thing beyond valuation is certainly that they have central banks that are not looking to tighten policy anytime soon. The European Central Bank and the Bank of Japan are staying historically accommodative. We have currencies that are cheaply valued. That means good news for exporters, also the cyclical sectors that are likely to pick up. And even if we talk about Omicron, that might put a bit of a pause. We might see a few lockdowns. What we're seeing is still a recovery where Europe and, and Japan are, are looking to playing catch up with the U.S., both in terms of performance on the markets, but also on the economic front. All right. Thank you, Mark. And uh, other things that you want to mention, because we've been talking all day back and forth on these things, but, uh, you know, in the in the few minutes we have left before we sum, summarize, what are, what are you thinking about today and you want our, our clients around the world to know? Uh, good point, Mark. So, I mean, one of the things that, that we highlight here is, is healthcare. And I'd say that diversification beyond some of the cyclical sectors that we like is certainly key. Healthcare has some defensive characteristics, which once the, the world economy starts to, to normalize that Paul talked about, that's going to be providing some sort of a uh, stable income, but also, I'd say, some structural opportunities that exist both around kind of healthcare, medtech, as we're seeing an aging population, emerging economies getting wealthier, meaning we're spending more part of our kind of uh, investment or, or bigger share of GDP on, on healthcare. I'd also say, Mark, maybe just when we take kind of the bigger picture also with Omicron kind of out there, inflation might still be somewhat of a topic as we move into 22. Diversification into something like um, uh, hedge funds is certainly something that we like. Private markets as well. This is your time to think diversification beyond just equities and, and bonds. And I'd also say that we have a lot of clients that still have been somewhat underinvested that have not really appreciated this risk opportunity. So while we want to be diversified into to periods of, of volatility like we're seeing at the moment, if we were to see a bit of a sell-off, I do think that there's going to be opportunities to add a bit of, of risk. And beyond kind of something like healthcare that we talk about here, maybe on the next slide, just to highlight something around digital disruption. Uh, sorry, let's go one, one further uh, on dis, uh, disruptive technologies. And here I'd say the ABC of technologies is something that we definitely want to hit home for clients. So it is a decade of transformation. We think that the real value in that trend is going to be outside of kind of the, the big tech names that, that we all know and more in the areas of small cap and, and mid cap. AI, big data, cybersecurity, along with 5G, is going to be that kind of transformational technology that's going to drive medtech, healthcare, the energy transition, etc., onwards. And maybe just on that note, Mark, the last thing I want to leave our, our clients and colleagues with on the final slide here uh, is around green, green technology, uh, where we have seen that this uh, move towards net zero carbon transition has just accelerated over the last couple of years. So the amount of countries that have kind of signed up for going CO2 uh, neutral or, or uh, has kind of increased up to covering more than 70% of, of people that are, are creating that CO2 mission uh, today. That means that everything we have done recently around global green tech in terms of the companies that will be that will be performing well on a global scale is really, really exciting. And we think there will be some real opportunities to be picking up if the market volatility is continuing. And with that, Mark, back to you. Well, thanks, Mark. You know, that is such a, a good point. If if there is an opportunity to position now with some of this volatility for things that are likely to have a growth rate over the next decade that every year far exceeds that of global GDP, 
that that is a real opportunity and certainly around uh, this disruptive technology and around uh, net zero those are the the decade-long trends that we are highlighting and and to your other points you know there are many ways to be involved there at different points uh, in companies life cycle be it private public uh, be at different places in the capital structure debt uh, you know, you, you blew through the unconventional yield slide because I was rushing you a little bit, but, you know, it does, rem it does remain the problem that uh, particularly in a rising rate environment, we must seek out uh, other sources of, of yield, be they private credit strategies, uh, you know, you, uh, the U.S. senior loans, be they equities with uh, dividends, uh, because owning uh, long-term bonds in a rising rate environment is a recipe for permanent loss of capital. Uh, so we're we're over, but let I love to take uh, I love to take the questions, and so I'm I, I see a couple here. I'm just gonna I'm gonna try to bang through these quickly. Um, how likely is the event of an inflation trigger recession for 2022 if current inflationary pressures continue throughout the first half of 2022? Uh, you know, it's possible. It is one of our scenarios that, that we outline. Uh, but, you know, think about this the way we kind of think about it from an investment perspective, because for inflation, if inflation was to continue, uh, for for that length of time, that would probably mean that also that the economy is ver being very strong, uh, su such that policymakers feel like they're forced to make a move to to rein in that inflation. Well, you know what? Then the period before that happening is going to be a great time to be invested in some of the sectors that we've highlighted around energy, financials, and and commodities, which would, would do well in a booming economy with some strong inflation. So, all, you know, you have to think about not just the risk, but what would be the opportunity as that risk may start to unfold towards that path. Another question we have is EM equities or DM equities in 2022. And I think as both uh, really uh, all, all three of our speakers, particularly uh, Salida and Mark, you know, highlighted, we're, we're focused right now on the DM story, uh, but EM is, is getting uh, very inexpensive. And so, you know, that, that could change to a degree based on price. But right now, you know, we're following the, we're we're following this uh, resurgence and this reflation in the developed markets as they come out of COVID and as, as they they spend it and grow to recover. And then uh, let's see what else here. There's a que uh, there's a question on the dollar, which so I'm um, Salita. Let me uh, let me pass that over to you for a second because I know I know that uh, I know you've given that some thought. You know, like, what do we think of the what do we think of the dollar and and the impact of policy on the dollar? Yep, thank you. So broadly speaking, um, I would say we expect currencies uh, exposed to you know tightening monetary policies or more hawkish central banks will appreciate relative to those you know bound to central banks with relatively loose policies. So Fed tapering and the market pricing and additional rate hikes uh, obviously was a key driver of the dollar rally lately, which moved higher against other currencies, um, you know, that have no prospect for central bank tightening, like Euro-Swiss and Japanese yen. 
Um, now, obviously, we have seen some of this move reverse after the variant next week, but overall, I think tighter Fed policy will support dollar uh, over the next year. I mean, it's basically a kind of a give and take between the fundamental forces, which is really argues for weaker dollar. We have the twin deficit versus the cyclical forces, which argues for a stronger dollar. Uh, and over the next year, we think those cyclical forces are going to be much more dominant, and we expect a, a moderate appreciation of dollar over the next year. Okay. And then uh, there's one last question here that I want to take in. I'm going to, I'm going to pass it to Mark, though, because it's a little unclear. It's about EM corporate, high grade, and the dislocation doesn't say local currency or or dollar denominated, um, but you know how how are we uh, how are we looking at uh, EM corporates here, Mark? Uh, absolutely, uh, it's a little bit unclear to me exactly what it's highlighting as well. But first of all, I'd say that if we look at global corporates, and it's really a bit independent of whether we're looking at EM or EM, is it then a relatively strong uh, position right now? A lot of it's been driven by. Uh, earnings growth uh, balance sheet that uh, that has been relatively strong on the back of this uh, ability to refinance at relatively low rates. So I think that's been all in kind of the positive camp. DM has generally been doing better because we have seen economic growth has been stronger. Certainly the dollar has been moving strong very recently as well. When we move into the emerging market space, and here to say that in particular we've seen a bit of wobble around Asia. So depending on which region we are looking at, obviously, uh, some of it is linked to the Chinese property sector where we have seen some defaults be rolling in and certainly the market is pricing at current with uh, spreads uh, above 10%, uh, something of a real risk scenario. We think there's some value that has really started to open up. So I think maybe the, the, what the question is trying to get us to say, Mark, is that we do think that for those clients that can take a bit of extra risk that in EM credit and may, maybe in the Asia area and Asia high, high yield in particular, that there's a real valuation case that has opened up here. And for those investors that can take a bit of the volatility that will come with some of the defaults in the property sector, you're most likely going to see some real attractive returns from investing into to this area of the market. So hopefully we are, we are answering the, uh, the question here as it was meant to be. Back to you, Mark. Well, thank you. And I, and I love these questions because it shows that we have people here who are looking at where the opportunities are. And that's what we learned through the COVID crisis. You have to do that. And so to let me summarize, uh, we are looking at all the aspects of uh, what is going on with these cross currents. And we're looking very hard at this Omicron. It's too early for us to change our base case views. We have our scenarios. We always work in scenarios, but we're sticking with our base case for the, the year of two halves. Uh, and we'll continue to monitor uh, what we have learned. As Salita, ha what we learned, as Salita mentioned, we have, we still have some things that we know that are coming up around uh, drugs that work, about the ability to tweak vaccinations uh, rates, and we're certainly watching the old standbys. What is going on with uh, hospitalization rates? Right, because it's one thing to hear about infection rates these days, but we all we know that many many of the infections are uh, mild, and so we need to watch that as well. So we're going to keep watching those things and reacting uh, where we need to with our portfolios, um, and we hope that you'll join us. Uh, we look forward to doing this again soon. So thank you very much.
UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at UBS.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at UBS.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.